Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com and subscribed with your email address, can I ask you to do that today? This is episode 68. We have a couple of stories. I am live in Twitter spaces. If you guys are on Twitter, make sure you're following me at DLB Muniz. If you're on other social media, make sure that you find me there as well. But Twitter is where I tend to be the most active. And this Twitter spaces thing allows some interaction between uh, between us in a fun kind of way, hopefully. At least that's what I'm, that's what I'm planning to make something like this. Um, I believe we're also live on YouTube, so you can find Ben Awake on YouTube as well. <clears throat> and of course, lest I forget... If you were thinking about it and you wanted to go to binawake.com slash subscribe and you wanted to become a premium member, that would be really cool. You get your first year 50% off. As as it stands, I'm a donation-based life form at the moment. So anyway, we're going to get it going here in a minute. We got a couple of stories um, from the that I wrote, right? And then, which is which is the normal process, by the way, if you're new to the show, I thought maybe that might be a good use of some time here at the beginning while I wait to see if anybody pops into the Twitter space to talk about virtue signals, right? Because we're going to get to the bottom of virtue signals a little bit in this episode. Maybe not the final answer, but maybe enough of an answer to where you can kind of understand how to deploy uh, better reasoning in your daily life, which is, you know, kind of the whole idea of the sense making we do here with me, LB. So we got a cup. So the general process that I have is that I write on my Substack. I try to produce something that is consumable on the shorter side, you know, maybe something that you take that you that something that you read on your phone during your morning constitutional. I think that's a great use of your time is to pick up better sense making. That might sound a little weird, but hey, it's a good idea and you should give it a shot with the emails that I send out at least uh, you know twice a week, sometimes more. And then of course there's the show where we are going to expound upon ideas because one one thing that I've hit recently on the shows that I've been on is just this real. It's it's not like it's particularly. Um, unique to me, but I think I just feel it deserves saying that, you know, ideas aren't so aren't as static as maybe some people want you to believe that they are. And just because something is written on the page, especially, by the way, especially in our world of social media, just because something is written on a page or on a screen doesn't mean it's a final thought. I like to say I tweet. What I tweet is different from what I write. What I write is different from how I talk about things. And of course, there's always going to be distinctions between what I try to put up publicly, what I might say privately to friends. And this is, this is to be expected of the world that we live in today. So the process of the show eventually became, I write on my Substack and then I talk about these ideas more fully. And that's kind of what it's turned into. And, you know, we talk, we cover news, mindset, and philosophy here. Um, and somewhere in between that, I think we might be able to get some answers for, I don't know, for today, for the world that we find ourselves in, whatever that, whatever you might think that it is at the moment. So right off the top here, right off the top here, I want to make sure that we, um, that, that I get this out of the way. If I recently wrote an essay at postlibertarianmoment.com, I think a lot of the people listening now 
new people um, have come to me because of a couple of the interviews that I did. Thank you so much for spending some of your, you know, hard-earned time, or rather, your precious time, to listen to listen to you know a relative unknown. But I think I think what you get out of listening to a show like this is um, entertainment first and foremost, but then also you know neat little noodles that you can incorporate into your consciousness, whatever the heck consciousness is. Am I right? I mentioned recently that I just watched watched Westworld. Pretty good show. I'm sure, you know, maybe, maybe you've heard of it. I'm like four years too late. So, uh, I'm going to be releasing a series, uh, that basically goes through the entire essay that I wrote that you can read in full at the post libertarian moment.com or at post libertarian moment.com. And it's, uh, so today's section is the intro, and I wrote a little preface to the preface, if you can believe that, just again, to reiterate this idea that, that you know, sometimes, especially especially in the world that we find ourselves, ideas are dynamic, right? And, and so we have to, the best, so the best practice, therefore, the best policy for you to take on for yourself is to make sure that you're, you know, looking at all sides of an issue as best you can, and to understand that maybe somebody, maybe when somebody you like or dislike says something, they could change their mind at a different point or add to a thought. And it's always good to think that there is more to say on an issue. Until, by the way, <laughs> careful caveat here, until somebody proves otherwise, right? Until until somebody proves otherwise that their word isn't to be trusted or that what they say is exactly what they mean, right? So maybe we maybe 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 that's a topic for another day or maybe it'll come up in, in the course of the conversation we have here. So the next few Mondays will be reprints of the sections that make up my new essay, The Post-Libertarian Moment. Um, hang on. I can share my screen, so why don't I do that? There we go. Because we're also on YouTube right now, so there will be video of this, especially for premium people. That that lasts longer. There, so the next few Mondays will be reprints of the sections that make up my new essay, The Post-Libertarian Moment Defined, which you can download in full by visiting postlibertarianmoment.com. I consider this essay of vital importance to anyone who calls, or as the case may be, called themselves libertarian. And don't forget, you can catch all of my appearances at beenawake.com appearances. Now, before we begin, there is one glaringly obvious omission from my essay, The Post-Libertarian Moment to Find, and by addressing it, I hope to create a better understanding of what I mean by describing this as a moment and not a movement. I describe the divide later in the essay as between those who want to, quote, make political statements and those who want to, quote, take political action. Clearly, we could draw a divide as well between those who want to engage in politics and those who do not. I do not believe that most people have to engage in politics directly. In fact, given that libertarians understand the benefits from the division of labor, we shouldn't expect most people to engage in politics directly. This is one of the reasons why there is no post-libertarianism, as many without knowledge would claim. There, is, there are merely libertarians who recognize the policy prescriptions and political strategies formulated post-World War II are out of date. So, this is the preface to the essay. There has been a stirring amongst libertarians across the country. Over the last 18 months and counting, we have witnessed the nightmare of tyrannical government come to fruition. Not only have many liberal Western democracies removed the last pretense of civil rights for their subjects, in parentheses, don't forget, many spent months locked in their homes at the government's behest. But our friends, 
family, neighbors, and fellow libertarians have cheered the lockdowns. Even worse, they turn their anger not at the government agents and media personalities making prisoners of us all, but at those of us who would question a political narrative with holes so big you could pilot a container ship through it with your eyes closed. In the summer of 2020, Americans, but I wrote libertarians, witnessed civil unrest not seen in over 20 years. Cities burned, businesses lost millions in revenue, people lost their lives, and tyrants in charge did nothing to stem the rioting. Infamously, outlets like CNN insisted upon a narrative that was occurring across the, the assisted upon a narrative that what was occurring across the country was, quote, mostly peaceful. All of this amidst the most contentious and orchestrated presidential campaign that we have ever seen. Really, you could argue in, in history. I say modern history in the piece. There are certain moments of history that will be spoken of for years to come. Certainly, the case can be made that the 2020s will be such a time. Given this fact, the question remains, what are libertarians to do? This article, this s what, what became an essay, it started as an article, this essay will define the post-libertarian moment, detailing what it is, why it happened, what it isn't, and what it means. But first, an abridged history, which will be the subject of next week's post. So we're just going to be doing this kind of in chunks, and we're going to expound upon the specific areas. I thought that would be a little bit better than doing it, I don't know, like all at once, because that would basically just take up a whole show. And, you know, we try to, we try to put things in bite-sized chunks here. So basically, you know, I think the 2020s are going to be important. And so I think if you want to be somebody who is making important things happen, you, you know, take a look at what you're looking at. Make sure that the, make sure that the ideas that you believe in are, are actually the right ones. So that's the simple part. We're going to go on to the other piece that I wrote this week. And then this and then we can do some Q&A for people who are in the Twitter spaces. Or if you're I guess if you're on YouTube, you can put it chat but you know the whole idea here is for a back and forth so i want to write about a piece called or rather i wrote a piece about what moralizing accomplishes and what it does not establishing what is moral is not the purpose of this post and for this podcast as the headline says we are going to investigate what moralizing accomplishes for the purposes of our conversation oxford's first definition provided by google will work as a jumping off point because we have to have a jumping off point for these kinds of conversations so what is moral? The word moral is an adjective concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior and the goodness or badness of human character. To restate, if we are dealing with what is moral, we are dealing with what is right and wrong. It's a pretty high stakes claim if you ask me. Of course, you can shop around for your moralities these days. Even if we were to take the dominant religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, we are presented with at least five different determinations of what is moral. This is not to say morality is relativistic, but it is to say people will claim different things to be moral at, at pretty much throughout all of human history. Moralizing, to continue the idea, is defined by Oxford as the, quote, action of commenting on issues of right and wrong, typically with an unfounded air of superiority. For the purposes of our discussion, that definition will work. Let's take three examples of moralizing headlines from the progressive left, conservative Inc., and libertarian circles to see what moralizing accomplishes. So from CNN, the headline reads, Days after school shooting, 
Representative Thomas Massey posts family photo, family photo with gun, asks Santa for ammo for Christmas. <gasps> oh my God. The above headline from CNN is a great example of progressive left moralizing. See, not only does somebody like Representative Thomas Massey own firearms, which is bad enough, and that's like a true crime in any progressive's book. But so not only will Tom, does Thomas Massey own firearms, a representative of the United States, but he will take the extra step of taking a cheesy photo with his family as a Christmas card and posting it to social media. The fact that there was a school shooting in Oxford, Michigan last week, as I wrote this, I think it's technically two weeks ago now, isn't the reason the progressive left hates Thomas Massey, right? What it does is give them an opportunity to moralize against him. So the fact that there was a school shooting is irrelevant. Clearly, this is one of those things that was planned in advance, right? The Massey family sits down for their Christmas card and, oh, haha, wouldn't it be fun if we all took a picture with rifles and, you know, just kind of cheesed it up as for like, you know, can, can do some donations. It's just nice PR for my constituents, blah, 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 blah. Like, right? It's very cheesy. It's very silly. That's, that's, that should be a reaction to it, but that's not what the moralizing left does. The moralizing left makes it a problem because there was a school shooting. So it's this opportunity that they get to capitalize on. But the reality is they don't care that Thomas Massey posted this a few days after a school shooting. They would have had a completely they would they would have had a completely different reason, or they would have just criticized the article itself. Or they would have criticized the photo one way or the other, right? They didn't have to write an article about the fact that there was a school shooting. They could have done a bunch of different things. It's because he's proud of the fact. It's because he doesn't find it shameful that he owns firearms. And that's not good enough for a moralizing progressive. They want to make you feel worse about yourself. So the next headline from Conservative Inc., a.k.a. Fox News. Well, Fox News isn't Conservative Inc. for, for like the sake of the sake of like making things clear. But like this is my example of Conservative Inc. Biden's build back better would do real damage to medical innovation just when we need it most. The above headline from Fox News is a great example of conservative ink moralizing. It relies on a common misconception in conservative circles that Democrats are, quote, just too dumb to recognize the, quote, truth about free markets. I have to sneeze. Sorry about that. You see, it's that the, the, the Democrats are just too dumb to recognize the truth about free markets the way they were discussed in the 1970s. See, Biden's build back better isn't wrong because it's a money pit or because it forces children into government schools at the tender age of three. No, you see, the moralizing conservative incorporated says the build back better agenda is wrong because it does damage to medical innovation. And guess what matters right now? <gasps> medical innovation. This is the this is the way in which conservatives or progressives driving the speed limit. There is no offense against the defense. It is merely mirror. It, it is merely reflecting back the reality that the progressive left wants to see in in their in their in their lessers, who who are conservatives in every case. So the third the third headline is from the Agorist Nexus: Government, a system of slavery. So I'm I'm now feuding with some agorists, specifically the agorists who wrote this article. After my post, Friendly Pot Shots at Agorism got some attention two weeks ago. This article is simultaneously the prequel and sequel 
to the original post I poked holes in, which by the way, if your next post is a prequel and a sequel, it kind of means that you didn't do a good job in your first article. Just, just for the record, like I could say, Oh, Hey, you know what? There's, there's some stuff I missed or let me expound the argument here. But if I have to do both, that means I didn't do a good enough job as a writer. Just my, my, just my opinion. If you're listening, see this libertarian circle known as agorism is committed to an anti-politics position as such, they must moralize against anyone who would consider running for political office or voting in political elections. I'm frankly not sure whether the author can even escape his moralizing framework. Because all governments are equally bad, any participation in the political process is equal to you supporting slavery. It follows, then, that anyone who wants to participate in it must really like slavery. So say the moralizing agorists. In the definition we used above, moralizing comes from one, from one who has an unfounded air of superiority. That still leaves undiscovered what moralizing is meant to accomplish. From my perspective, moralizing only serves to reinforce an already established in-group preference. This is why moralizing is perceived by the out-group as being unfounded. In our first example, every moral progressive knows gun ownership is wrong. This means that even if you think people can own firearms because the Constitution says we have to, they should never be happy about it. That's why they hate Thomas Massey's photo. Not because he has a firearm. That's bad enough. It's because he doesn't have a problem with the fact that he owns a firearm. In our second example, every moral conservative knows Democrats are stupid. This means they will always get things wrong just when the country needs it most to get it right. Gosh, I mean, we're going to spend all this money anyway. Can't they just do it right? Why do they have to do it so wrong? In our third example, every moral agorist knows government is slavery. This means you can't be in politics no matter what, even if most of them were inspired by Ron Paul's presidential runs of 2008 and 2012. The last section in this piece is entitled Blood-Soaked Monsters and the Hashtag Murder Cult. I told this story in a recent appearance I made on Free Man Beyond the Wall. I was arguing once a number of years ago with someone about American politics. In the course of our argument, I deployed a common pejorative slung by libertarians and other anti-war types. This pejorative is, is referring to the, quote, upstanding members of the American political elite and calling them blood-soaked monsters because many of them can be considered responsible for the terror wars of the 21st century, which have killed and displaced millions across the Middle East, as well as taken the lives of American troops and, display and disrupted the lives of their families who you know, had to deal with the fact that they were sent to wage wars. My expectation when I deployed this pejorative was to stop my rhetorical opponent in their tracks. Surely, they would have to contend with this most vicious of insults. Instead, they completely dismissed my characterization and continued to argue their point. Why? Because they weren't primed for my moral message and therefore didn't care about my moralizing. Moralizing, therefore, does not persuade the non-believer and in most cases further, further alienates someone from your position. This is because most humans consider themselves to be moral. So when you challenge their moral frame with one of your own, you're going to trigger cognitive dissonance because they're protecting their identity in a sense. There is one, there is one thing moralizing does beyond reinforcing the in-group, and it can drive wedges in relationships. So be careful when you're deploying them. So this leads us into the discussion of 
getting to the bottom of virtue signals. So let's pause real quick and take a look at the uh, take a look at the old spaces here. And if anybody in there wants to uh, wants to request to speak and ask a question, that'd be great. Or if you have a or if you want to move the conversation along, so let's talk about virtue signals now. Um, I don't know how I don't know how this works if they request. So I'm going to invite the one person in there to speak. If you want to speak, feel free to speak. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, so the whole concept of the virtue signals. Virtue signaling is something that we've talked about a lot over the last 10 years, right? And it's usually something, interesting enough, it was something that was originally levied from the right to the left, right? It was from like conservatives and Republicans to Democrats, but more, but but just as often now, it, it goes the opposite direction, right? It, it actually goes from the left to the right. One interesting way this happens a lot, there, there are two very common ones that you'll see in deployed in the press and deployed elsewhere. The first one, it has to do with the word snowflake, right? Progressives and like, and like your default leftists have become, have gotten really excited at the idea that they can call a conservative a snowflake because, you know, I don't know, because it was a word 10 years ago that people used. And the second one so Snowflake is the first one. And another really common one that I've seen recently are conservatives who are pro-cancel culture. Because, you know, once we have a catchy thing to say, we just have to throw it back and forth like monkeys flinging poop. And if you think I'm that if you think I'm far off with that characterization, um, it's that's why I have a show and you do not. Because I am right. Because it's ba- sometimes a lot sometimes a lot of Twitter is akin to monkeys flinging poop. And and there is a level of discourse that is effectively monkeys flinging poop there, there's just as much conversation happening there's just as much like exchanging of ideas or like an idea developing into something worthwhile that would be my contention and this and one way that the left does this a lot has to do with this whole cancel culture thing now and so what have we been saying for forever oh well it's just virtue signaling all these virtue signalers can you believe it now we started did we? No, we actually didn't. I didn't define what virtue is for the purposes of our conversation because that moves on. That that ex- that adds to the piece that we just wrote. So if we just do a quick goog, virtue. The definition of virtue is behavior showing high moral standards. Okay, so we attach this to the idea of what is moral, the idea of like the good. So this is so a virtue is a behavior showing high moral standards. So virtue is always an act. Right, it is always something that you do, perhaps, or as the case may be, something that you say. But you can argue that something that when you say something, you're also kind of doing something in a sense. In a sense, that doesn't mean words are violence. So, if if vir- so, a virtue signal. So you are signaling that your behavior is showing a higher moral standard. Okay, well, why are you? Why, why is it that you're using the term then? Because generally speaking. Virtue signaling is used in a pejorative sense, just like moralizing is used in a pejorative sense. See, what is like, obviously, pretty much everyone agrees that something is good, right? We, we not, there might not be agreement over what is moral, but most people agree, would agree that there is a moral. There is something that is moral. That just just thinking about it in a broad sense, right? Because of course there's differences in interpretation of what is moral, depending on the culture or the person or the time that you live in, right? 
but like what is moral is, is there and so we have ethics to try and figure this out and of course virtue when we when we just when we exhibit virtue we are in line with this moral behavior but virtue signaling and moralizing both have a negative connotation right the in the moralizing definition it's about an unfounded air of superiority in virtue in virtue signaling we're saying that somebody is signaling you know it, it's generally used as an insult oh you're just virtue signaling right now now specific to the virtue signaling i think what is interesting is it's, it's often conversation dependent right so it's often the case that like you know somebody might just start virtue signaling in the middle of your conversation the point here is about the in group and and if you've listened to the show for any amount of time and for those of you who are new welcome make sure you make sure you subscribe make sure you check out what i have here to offer this sense making thing really does work The virtue signaling reinforces an in-group. It might not be, as the case may be, usually the person who's being levied, of, who's being accused of virtue signaling is talking to somebody who's not in the same in-group as them. But, but, but it still is about the in-group. It's just not, it, as the case may be with the moralizer, it's just not the in-group that you're talking to. Why does this matter? It matters from, a, from, the, from the position of persuasion. It matters from the position of how you are being interpreted by the other person. See, I don't believe necessarily that morality is relativistic. That being said, there is a subjective element to everything that is moral. Because reality is mediated through the individual. So there has to be a subjective element. And if I'm trying to show, and this, this, these are mistakes, these are mistakes, right, that I've made. I, I, like the bottom of the piece there is me having the conversation wondering why it didn't stop somebody in their tracks because obviously I was right. Well, it turns out when you when you attack somebody's moral framework, they tend to react negatively to it, especially if they've never been in a position where their moral framework is, uh, is questioned. And if people are going to get upset if you, you know, criticize an outfit that they're wearing... Imagine what somebody imagine imagine what you can do if somebody's saying that you're like an evil person who needs to go who who doesn't deserve to be around. See what is moral reinforces an in-group. And we can agree that like real morality is universal in a sense, but there's a political there's there's political virtue, there's political morality, isn't there? Especially in the society that we find ourselves in now. And that's one of the reasons and this this is complicated on a medium like Twitter because Twitter is just always in-group signaling that the out-group sees. Bridging that divide between the in-group and out-group is a completely different conversation than trying to reinforce the in-group. So we have to understand from this that moralizing from the standpoint of, of persuasion is, is not a good idea. And let's let's walk through one example and then we're going to move and then we'll move on to a couple other stories that I highlighted on my Twitter feed and then we'll wrap up today's episode. But let's oh crap, what was I going to do? Moralizing virtue signals. An example of that. It's not coming to me. So let's do an example from Twitter that did happen this week. So, this past week um going back here to where we were this is on YouTube. But anyway, so there was one there was one story in particular 
So I've, I've, I've talked about this picture of the Thomas Massey thing. And if you haven't seen it, you should go look at the email that I sent out to you guys on Sunday. It's going to be a weekly piece. Very simple. It's just a bunch of my retweets from Twitter. Because I know not everybody you know, follows my Twitter exactly. Not everybody is even on Twitter who subscribes to me or listens to the show. So, And like Twitter is kind of a really easy, quick way to you know, aggregate news. That's one of the reasons why it's so popular amongst journalists and writers and so on. So I'm going to try to post fun things that I say there, that I see there and retweet there in, in one place so that I, it's easier to cover on the show. So <laughs> it's a picture of, the, of Thomas Massey with his family on the left. And on the right is, I believe it, it looks photoshopped, frankly, but it's like a stock, fo- it's a stock Christmas photo of a family and they're all wearing face masks. And the Twitter user, Jermaine Vincent, who's pretty cool, shout out uh, at JRR underscore Vincent. He said he used the meme to, t- to caption this, which way Western men? Are you a goofy engineer? from Kentucky who lives in a house that's completely off grid. Are you that guy who's, you know, who's doing a cheesy photo holding guns with his family? Or are you the family that's going to wear face masks in your, uh, in your Christmas card this year? Which way Western men? Just, just a thought. Just think about it. I know which way I'm going to go. So, and then just to wrap up this story with this guy. So there is a gentleman who claims to be libertarian I believe he's involved with the LP. His at his handle is at Chase for Liberty. So for the record, this guy's saying that he is for liberty, and I'm just challenging him on that. So he tweeted in response to this whole Thomas Massey thing that I've been harping on for a bit. But it's a worth it's it's a worthwhile cultural story for that point about virtue signaling and in group reinforcement. You understand? It's worthwhile to explore to then look at people's behavior in light of what we just talked about in regards to moralizing. So this guy replied to another tweet that was basically saying it's it's dumb to criticize Thomas Massey and not to do I think somebody did something grotesque with like with the picture photoshop wise and insofar as like he did it with his children and like that's kind of a line you know um if you know anything about like there's this there's this I, I, allegedly I haven't seen the picture I don't really want to but allegedly this involved a picture where the where all of the rifles in the picture were photoshopped out for dildos because, of course, I think there was some, like, arcane law in Texas that made it illegal to carry a dildo out in the open. But we can do that on... But but you could open carry a rifle. So, like, you know, that's 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 the limit of leftist thought right away, by the way. It's like, everything is just a penis. I just summarized feminism. <laughs> I just summarized the worst aspects of feminism, to be fair. <laughs> but But it's like, everything is just a penis and that's bad. <laughs> Where's the lie? Where is the lie? So, um, so he says, while I think you are correct, I also think a few people were convinced that few people were convinced to honor the second amendment and the rights with a congressman taking a performative, a performance photo op for a few days after a school shooting where parents seemed quite negligent in giving their kid access to a gun. Now to the facts of the case, that seems, that seems likely I will withhold judgment until everything is adjudicated, but you know, that's just what a responsible person does. Twitter doesn't. Twitter doesn't incentivize responsible behavior, by the way. That's why it's WWE. That's why you should treat it like WWE. It's like professional wrestling. 
Now, I'm calling this, I called this guy out basically for taking the same line as the corporate press, taking the same line as the worst media institutions that have led the American people astray, let's say. Let's, let's just start there, right? How about they, how about they lied about the wars in Iraq? Let's, let's stick with an easy one that everyone agrees to now. Forget the, forget the more recent ones that everyone will agree with me with in 10 years. Specific to the point, though is I have the same headline that I just talked about. Days after school shooting, Representative Thomas Massey posts family photo with guns, asks Santa for ammo for Christmas. Days after school shooting. See, that's that's the hook, right? That's, 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 that's turning the screws on the moral framework. And for the people looking to moralize, for the people looking to virtue signal, they, they're going to pick up on that. And that's, and that's why they like it. That's why they want to talk about it. So I wrote, my dad, my bad dude, I thought this was your tweet because he was saying that I didn't, you know, what did he say? I said, I don't take the same line as the corporate press. I support less gun laws and also know what being tactless looks like. Lack of tact makes no new allies in the effort to secure Second Amendment rights. Of course, I quote tweeted him with the screenshots we just talked about. And I said, it's my bad dude. I thought this was your tweet taking the same line as the corporate press because, of course, there's a whole few days later thing. It's opportunistic, I said. Poor form for someone who claims to be for liberty and signals the progressive view that gun owners should be ashamed of the fact they own firearms. See, it's not the fault of Thomas Massey that those parents arguably did a poor, that those parents in the school, frankly, did a poor job with the boy who shot people in Michigan. I, I like, it's not Thomas Massey's fault, and it's not the fault of the millions of gun owners. It's a failure of the system, but it doesn't have to do with the fact that, per se, people can own guns. Now, I don't, I'm not going to speak too much about the story because I haven't followed it that closely, but enough, but enough is enough on that front. And this is why, this is why it's not like there is no more meeting people halfway on the, on the topic of gun ownership. The people who understand that self-defense includes the right to own a firearm have won. And the only thing taking it away is going to be massive government legislation and, you know, effectively waging war on the American people. That's really the only thing that's going to get rid of the Second Amendment at this point. And by the Second Amendment, all I care about is the proliferation of gun ownership. There are more guns than people in America. The only reason why you think that you have to signal that you have to worry about tact is because your virtues, your ethics, dare I say your morality, is not in line with the belief system that supports firearm ownership in, in, in the Second Amendment. And the Second Amendment, I should say. That would be my contention. And by the way, you're if, if that person is listening to this, which I'm assuming he's not, but like if that person was were to be listening to this right now, it would make complete and total sense to me that he would be getting upset and that he would feel like I should I should correct myself. Right? Because he, no, 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 he just said it right there. He's for gun ownership. He just thinks that it was tactless to take a cheesy family photo and to probably have it scheduled a week out. And, you know, it just happened to follow in and it just happened to fall in line with the news cycle. I think Thomas Massey did the right thing, obviously. <laughs> So we got um, so next little piece here that I wanted to talk about. Um, if you guys have never heard of the libs of TikTok uh, Twitter page, it's just it's just awesome. This is something that I think is from Facebook, 
and it's under the hashtag teacher problems. And this was something that uh, this was something that I saw from the libs of TikTok page. So I, I highly recommend it. And I want to bring this to people's attention just for, because it'll be some fun fodder here. But it also it's again, if we're talking about like who's on what side, because those are the times I think we live in now. Right. It's just my again, just my opinion. If we're talking about who's on what side, how you treat children matters. How, how are most how are most major legislation like overhauls passed? Well, it's for the children, right? If we could only save one life. See, I'm supposed to, going back to the story of Thomas Massey before, I'm supposed to be upset at the fact that Thomas Massey had a firearm in the photo because what about the children? Okay, so what about the children? Let's explore that in this teacher, in this thing that a teacher posted. It reads, white teachers, please check your white fragility. If a white person makes a comment in defense of BIPOC after you've claimed to want to do work to be anti-racist and that makes you mad, consider why you are irritated. Is it because a white person had the audacity to fend BIPOC? Or wasn't that our shared goal here? Or is it because you felt defensive over being accused of the opposite. This is why it is important for us as white teachers to learn how to be anti-racist from BIPOC speakers and authors who are highly educated in this topic and have written books or done talks about it. I have learned a lot from following these authors and speakers. And the most important thing I've learned is to recognize and accept my own implicit bias and fragility, which I was socialized into, because it's not my fault. This is how we grow as white people and teachers who are anti-racist. I'm not speaking for my BIPOC friends. I am sharing my own personal relevations in my own anti-racism work. If it irritates you to be corrected, ask yourself why. That's where the real anti-racism work begins. Remember, we have a shared goal to become better teachers for our BIPOC students. If you're wondering, pretty sure BIPOC, if I remember correctly, means black indigenous people of color. Do you see the clearness of which it's presented in a moral frame here? You know, there are exceptions to what I was talking about in, in regards to how you persuade. But part of the reason, it's not that there are exceptions, right? Because you, you could come up with an objection to what, I was, what I've been saying about reinforcing an in-group and moralizing and how it doesn't work on people if they're in the out-group. And you could say that, well, I mean, you know, but, but people change their mind all the time, which they do. Maybe not, not every person all the time, but, some, but most people at least once in their life will change their mind on something. So, so you could say that. And you could also, you know, point to examples where people have like changed political affiliations and something like that. See, part of the reason why this is getting harder has to do with what the bedrock, the bottom, right? Getting to the bottom of what virtue signals mean, that the bedrock has actually is actually different for different people. I read this thing and I, you know, I I, I go back and forth between like just wanting to laugh. And like, and getting upset because somebody like this is teaching kids to feel this way. Somebody like this is getting taught, is teaching kids to feel this way, but like, it's a problem if you tell kids that like, 
God is watching and you shouldn't do bad things. You see the disconnect? That's how deep I argue this, like this, this woke, I don't know what to, who, who knows what to call it anymore, right? We kind of have, we kind of call it the woke. We kind of call it this critical race theory. It is this, it's frankly just, it's frankly just an iteration of progressivism, of American progressivism, but there's enough distinction to where, you know, you, you have to, you have to make the point. And, and, and that ambiguity in language, by the way, is by design. It, it's not the case that, that, that they're, that they're, amb- that they're not ambiguous. Unless you, like, like, like just go through this piece again, real quick. This is a white person, right? And, and, and I've said before, I detest the idea of white. I detest the concept of a white race. I find it completely anathema. It's ahistorical. It means nothing except in this, in, except as a method of social control. And what, and morality in, a, in effect has to do with social control. Because morality is how you bind a group together. Right? The schema of culture, starting from the personality, working its way up to civilization. By the way, make sure you're subscribed because that's definitely a Q&A on that is coming. I just have to, I have to take what are countless hours in my brain and put them into a presentation that I can give people so that we can start to explore that schema of culture together. But part of the reason why this why this moralizing business matters is because the bedrock has changed. The bedrock is different now. It is it is as if it is as if we are on a fault line and standing on two tectonic plates. But of course, these are ideas, right? So maybe at one point in time there was no fault line between between the bedrock, but now there is. We could do a whole deconstruction of what this post has to do from a moral framework, but let's just go to the end. I'm not speaking for my bike pop, my BIPOC friends. I am sharing my own personal revelations in my own anti-racism work. If it irritates you to be corrected, ask yourself why. See, it's not enough. That that's right. Like, oh, you're doing something wrong. That's the moralizing. That's the virtue signaling that we're talking about here. The real anti-racism work begins when you start to question yourself. Because again, as I wrote a couple of weeks ago, the point of the, the, the point of personal pronouns, the idea that you can own your own pronouns, has nothing to do with whether people are going to accept them or not, and everything to do with making you feel bad about your choice. And and in fact, more often than not, it's the per, it's making some making somebody feel bad because they're trying to do the right thing. Right. That it's it's not just that they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to make sure they, quote unquote, respect somebody's pronouns. And so when when you mess up, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot your pronouns. There's the moral framework again. This this pattern becomes clearer and clearer the more you see it. You should definitely go read that email, by the way. The reason why you should read that email is because there is a fantastic little video in there of that because the the person who. Um, the, the woman behind libs of TikTok Twitter account did an interview. And so they put a montage of some of the greatest crazies. Um, I thought about playing it, but I'll tell you, just go listen to it. So this next, so the next one, next thing I wanted to talk about is a four day work week. And hopefully this just doesn't. And of course there's an ad. So this is from the Hill, this story. And uh, we'll just read through it, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about, I think, my take on this because because it matters. Because this is something, this is one of those things that 
this is one of those things that changes whether somebody gets better. And by get better, I mean like improves their station in life. This this kind of mentality. And it traces back to one of the ideas that we talked about um, earlier in the in this in this episode. Because it's all connected. Or at the very least, I can make it that way. <laughs> so the story from the hill reads. The Congressional Progressive Caucus is putting its weight behind a measure that could fundamentally alter Americans' Americans' traditional work week. Representative Mark Takano, Democrat from California, said in a statement the nearly 100-member group formally endorsed the, quote, 32-hour work week act, noting the measure is a move toward a modern-day business model that prioritizes productivity, fair pay, and an improved quality of life for workers across the country. After a nearly two-year-long pandemic that forced millions of people to explore remote work options, it's safe to say that we can't and shouldn't simply go back to normal because normal wasn't working. I, let me ask you guys something. Just, just for those of you playing Keeping Score at home, what's, what was normal exactly? Like, what's, what's, what's more normal? Being able to get food places or not? Because I feel like in 2019, it was, you know, places weren't understaffed and, you know, you could at least get the thing that you asked for. In fact, I know that was the case. So, so you see, they're trying to rewrite reality because, you know, it's up for grabs, people. That's why you have to take power. Um, Takano first introduced the measure in July, which reportedly garnered endorsements from several labor unions. The bill would not eliminate 40-hour work weeks altogether, but it will require to offer employees overtime pay after 32 hours. Groups across... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can let them work 40 hours. You just got to pay them over. Like, God. Groups across several countries have experimented with the shortened work week, and they never worked. With some showing, none of them showed positive signs. They don't even link. Let's see. A major study in the four-day work. Oh, this was in Iceland. Was declared a major success by the think tank Alda and Autonomy. Oh, that's weird. Does this link not work? Oh my God, the link doesn't work. Okay, but it looks like it was. It looks like it was linking to a study, which I have to give. I have to give the author credit. But see, Autonomy.work doesn't even work as a web address either. So I'm gonna assume. Since it was a PDF, I'm going to assume that this article existed at one point in time. I, I can't know that for sure, but I'm going to I'm going to give the author a benefit of the doubt because usually with a story like this, you wouldn't actually you wouldn't even get a hyperlink. And if you did, it wouldn't be linking to a PDF. So in this case, shout out to if I can find Adam, Adam Barnes. Good job, Adam. Um, let's see. Finishing the piece. Particip okay, so this is quoting from the report. Participating workers took on fewer hours and enjoyed greater well-being, improved work-life balance, and a better cooperative spirit in the workplace, all while maintaining existing standards of performance and productivity. The report read. Now, of course, what we don't know is what kind of worker these are. Workers these are, and that's key to this entire conversation. Because I can already tell you, because this is presented by the progressive, this is suffering from an egalitarian delusion. Meanwhile, caucus chair Pramila Jayapal, Jayapal, Jayapal. Hayapan? Hayapan. Primila? No, Primila, that doesn't sound Spanish. Jayapal. 
<laughs> said Takano's bill could put power back in the hands of American workers whose wages have stagnated over decades. Far too long, workers across this country have been forced to put in longer hours as their wages barely budge. It is past time that we put people in communities over corporations and their profits, finally prioritizing the health, well-being, and basic human dignity of the working class rather than their employer's bottom line. Jayapal continued, the 32-hour work week would go a long way towards finally righting that balance. Lies. These people are liars, and they do it in public for millions, and no one will call them on it. Not no one. I know that's hyperbolic, but... It just this doesn't this you know why this gets like why i'm getting so animated right now is because of what this is doing and i want to trace it back to the article that the article that i talked about from the agorist nexus which which spent which i don't even know how many words was in that one i, I sometimes try to count words just because it's a fun little thing to do you know and it's, it's the way i kind of like poke poke people in the eye sometimes if need be um, you, you can use it both ways, right? So like if somebody writes something really long in response to you, it's like, oh my God, can you believe this guy wrote so many words? And if somebody like just put a tweet, it's like, oh my God, can you believe this guy? He, he couldn't, he doesn't even have the decency to respond to me, right? So it's like something you can kind of use just, yeah, just so we're clear here. <laughs> um, like th- These people, like this is just, this is a lie. Why? It's, it's com- because here's what's actually going on. What's actually going on is they are signaling to their, because this is all about vo- like, in, in, as a politician, your currency is in votes. Your dollars, your dollars were going to increase if you make it into Congress. That's just a reality, right? Very few people leave Congress poorer than when they walked in. So, like, this, this isn't actually. This has nothing. So, let me be clear. This has nothing to do with reality, or rather, this has nothing to do with reality as it is. This has nothing to do with the best practices on how to improve your life. This has everything to do with social control. This has everything to do with how the progressives and how politicians in general use, utilize methods of social control and signal to an in-group. And what they're signaling to a large segment of the population is it's not your fault. It's not your fault that everything, that everything bad has happened to you. And, and it's okay, because I'm going to take care of you. See, that's, that's the obvious implication. This is, and here's the reality of it. Because, because people have adopted a victim morality, which we've talked about in the past on this show, but to be brief about what it is, it's basically an inversion of, a, of an honor morality, of an honor-based morality, right? An honor-based morality is like the most important thing is my honor, and so if you insult my honor, I'm going to have to kill you. And the victim morality is the most, the, most, uh, the most important thing about me is my victimhood status and the fact that it's not my fault, and if you try to take that away from me, I'm going to, I'm going to send a Twitter mob against you. I'm going to get you canceled. I'm going to get you fired, right? You won't be able to do the things that you like to do. What these progressive, and and that's what progressivism, that's what progressivism breeds, by the way, because progressivism is all about the technocratic elites knowing better than the people. That's what it boils down to. And turns out a lot of people want to be talked down to because like, at least from my perspective, that's that's in effect what happens if you say, "Oh, you need to." The fact that the fact that you're not having a nice life is because you work forty hours a week instead of thirty-two. You know what the reality is? If you look if you look at these things at scale, you know we could we could. You want to make this my full time job? We'll, we'll have all the stats and stuff. Which, as I'm thinking about it, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But but the point being. 
I, it, the point being, I don't have a study. I don't have a handpicked study to try and prove my point here. I do have some direct empirical evidence in this matter, right? Because what a study, what if I, I don't, I, I wish I had looked into the study a little bit more so I could say this definitively, but I would venture to guess that some of the, that, that, that the work that we're talking about is not uh, how you say, the work that we're talking about here is not how you would say manually intensive or low skill. Right. Everybody's taught, everybody talked last year about working from home. And listen, I, I like working from home myself. I'm happy to be in a position now where I get to do it when I choose to. Like being able to work remote. It's a nice, it, it works for some people. It doesn't work for other people, by the way. Some people are temperamentally unsuited to it. Moreover, some work requires you to be in a physical location. The average union GM employee earns something like $130,000 a year, by the way, when you factor in benefits. These people make good money. I, I, I died laughing about the whole like 32 hour to 40 thing because it's just going to, it's going to be a decrease in wages, right? That's going to be the first thing you do is you offer fewer wages, you offer a lower wage because, well, now we have to pay you overtime for that last day because the 40 hour work week isn't going anywhere, people. There are already people right now, by the way, who are working for an hourly wage doing a 40 hour work week. They do four tens. It's very common and it's very common in different sectors of the economy. It's less common in others. And I also laugh at the whole 32 hour thing because I know very well, see the people that this is designed to help, at least this is what they'll say are the people at the lowest bottom of the rung. Anybody who has like anybody who has a high functioning job, right? Where your job is, where your job is not traded in hours, your job is traded in your tills, your skills and talent. Usually like the differentiation is between that and a salary, right? Hourly and salary. And salary is, it's not the same for every salary employee, salary employee, employee, salaried employee, but there's a correlation. So the people who trade their time for dollars or there's people, and there's people who trade their skills for dollars. You can, you can look at the workplace, but in between that dichotomy and you, and you get a lot, the people, a lot, the people at the lowest level of those who trade their skills for dollars or, or rather who trade their time for dollars not their skill, because you can still get an hourly wage and get paid for your skills. You see, so it's not it's not a hard and fast thing about how you're how you're. That's why that's why I got hung up on the salary thing before. But the people who are trading their time for dollars, they think that their life would be better if they worked less, because the person who the person who works there the person who's achieved a lot understands that sometimes it means that you work until like seven o'clock at night, and sometimes it means you get to leave early on a Friday. And you get to go, you know, and you, and you don't have, you, you just have to make sure that you're paying attention to your email in the morning because, because you're trading your skills for dollars, not your time. you like, your time is obviously a part of that. Hopefully my, hopefully I'm being clear. Hopefully that makes sense. And that's why this won't work and it's going to make things worse, but that's what these people want to do because they want you to be less than they want you to be. They want you to be a dependent class that votes for them because they're going to tell you we just have to do one more thing. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking the other day. I was just thinking the other day about how uh, I was just thinking about how like Obamacare didn't make anything better. And, and like, I know, like, I know that it. I, I knew when it was passed that it wasn't really going to make anything better. But it was just kind of funny to me that like, man, it's just. It just really didn't like we're, we're what we're almost, are we almost 10 years from Obama? Well, no, 2008, 
I can do math 2008. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're more than like, we're almost, we're probably coming up on 10 years. We're probably coming up on the 10 year anniversary of Obamacare. Let's see. Obamacare. Da, 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 da. Yeah, March 23rd, 2010. It's been 11 years. And people still would say that America is the worst healthcare system in the world. Like the 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 four the thirty two hour work week doesn't make things better, right? It might it's going to put a little bit of money in some people's pocket for the short term, but in the long term, it's going to even out because it has to. Again, going back to just my 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 particular knowledge of people who earn a very high wage working for an hourly. Uh, working for an hourly rate because they trade their skills for dollars, not just their time. Like there are plenty of people who earn more money than I do on an hourly wage. And a lot of that comes from working overtime. And you know what? Yeah. Sometimes that means you're working six, seven days a week, but for some people that's worth it. Some people are willing to trade their trade all that time so that they have more money for, you know, maybe their kids or maybe for a future, maybe just for their future, maybe so that they can retire one day. The entire, the, the entire idea of this bill is not to make people's lives better. It's to make people's lives dependent. It's to make people's lives, well, if you will, it's to make you like a slave. I, I do have a piece, by the way, that I'm going to be writing about, you know, is everything slavery or not? Because it's a worth, it, it is actually a worthwhile intellectual pursuit. And I think at the end of it, you'll see why I detest people who are going to make everything about slavery. But that's going to do it for me, guys. Don't forget, follow me on all social media at the LB Muniz. If you like what you heard today, go to inawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is L.B. Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.